listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro, and on tonight's show, a one-on-one exclusive interview with former 1980s Blue Jays designated hitter, Garth Orge. The Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network's Richard Burfer and Dan Seguin drop in to talk about the Blue Jays' top three pitching prospects, and of course, our usual brand of stellar, exciting, high-octane roundtable action featuring Emily Walden from The Athletic MLB, Marshall Auerbach from The Levy Institute, and Sean W. Smith from The Globe and Mail, Viceland, and Sportsnet. So buckle up, grab yourself a frosty beverage, and get ready for this next episode of the Jay's Journal Podcast. My special guest on this edition of the show is a former player who spent his entire nine-year baseball career with the Blue Jays. Selected in the 1976 expansion draft and ultimately called up in April of 78, he would become a true utility player, platooning as a right-handed designated hitter and also spending time at second, first, shortstop, and even the outfield. I want to welcome Garth Orge to the Jays Journal podcast. Garth, thanks for finding the time to join me. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I mentioned to you uh, off-camera, as they say, that it was quite surreal for me to have an opportunity to speak with someone whom I personally enjoyed watching back in the 80s. And, of course, in today's world of uh, frenetic social media and uh, limited attention spans, it's always a pleasure to speak with someone who didn't have to play baseball under that kind of surreal microscope. When, when you look back to your playing time in baseball and compare it to the way the game is being presented and enjoyed today, what's the, what's the biggest thing that might come to mind that really sets aside your experiences to the average young player that might be trying to become a professional baseball player? Well, I just think that I grew up in a very innocent time where there was Little League and you just kind of graduated from Little League to you know, Babe Ruth, and then maybe American Legion Baseball in high school. And now today it's just travel ball, and you pay to play. And, it, you know, it's just gotten so crazy. And I think it's very, very tough. If you're not um, – if your parents aren't – don't have the funds to do it, it's hard to do. It's hard to get some of the best athletes out there. So, it's, you know, I grew up in a very innocent time, and I'm just so thankful I did because my parents would not have had the funds to do something like – what would require to be required of them today. And being an American, what did it mean to you to realize that you were joining what was at the time one of only two Canadian franchises that existed in MLB? Well, I was with the uh, Yankees, and I got in, taken in the expansion draft. And if anybody knew the Yankees in the 70s, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of movement. They had a great, org- they had a great team. They had a great organization. Um, you know, George Steinbrenner wanted somebody. He he just went out and got us. So when the Blue Jays selected me, I was ecstatic. I was like so excited because I thought thought for the first time in my life that, you know, hey, there's a real chance that I could make it to the big leagues. And so, you know, I left, and it was just like the greatest thing that ever happened. So I was, I didn't care if the Blue Jays, I didn't care where they were at. I didn't care if they, you know, played in Russia, it would have been fine. You know, I just wanted a chance to play in the major <laughs> leagues, and it was great. The city was fantastic. Well, and it's interesting, isn't it, that you were you were chosen in the expansion draft at a time when expansion teams really needed to toil. It's not like what we see, for example, in hockey with the Vegas Golden Knights. First year in the league, and all of a sudden they're touted as being perennial favorites. It's It's very surreal in that regard. From a baseball perspective, the Blue Jays through 1977 up until about 1981-82 were a team that lost a lot of games, as expected, 
because they were developing. But what were your impressions of the metamorphosis of how your club eventually turned into a kind of band of brothers who had 99 wins in 85 and 96 in 87? What did that mean to go through that arc of development and evolution? Well, you know, a lot of this credit goes to Pat Gillick. I mean, may, in fact, I would say all of it does because he kind of stuck to it. You know, we started off with Peter Bavazian. Peter was great, you know, but Pat eventually took over as general manager. And, and him and Paul Beeson kind of split the, the presidency there for a while. But those two guys, between the both of them, they just decided that, hey, we're going to stick with what we have, these young guys, and we're going to develop them within, and we're going to, you know, help them through the free agency market to pick a player here and a player there to, to help us get over the hump. And that's what they did. And they made some nice trades. They got some good players. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but in 84, we got within like a game and a half of Detroit and went in there. And the only reason we didn't do well that year was because we did not have a closer. So the following year, they go out and they trade Alfredo Griffin for Bill Cottle. And Bill Cottle was hurt and couldn't pitch the way they were, we were expecting him to. But we also had Tom Hinky in the minor league. And when Tom came up, our team became a great team. Not a good team. It became a great team because we had a guy at the end of the at the end of the game that could get those last three or six outs. Well, and of course, we've got to give you a great deal of credit for how you evolved as a player. Back in 85, you had the highest batting average on the team. You hit 313, you slugged 469, impressive numbers. And what was especially interesting to me watching you and anyone who looks back at some of the footage of that era is your batting stance. It was considered as remarkable and as unique as one could find in the game. <laughs> you know, you really did something quite unorthodox, which evolved and worked for you. At what point did you realize, hey, this is finally clicking for me, and I'm going to be the hitter that I need to be as the right-handed member of this important designated hitter platoon? Well, what happened was I was in AAA, and I was kind of struggling a little bit the year before. And so the following year, I went back to AAA, and I said, i got to make a change. I have to do something. So I started looking around at the best hitters and what they did. And they put most of their weight on their back foot. And so I did that. I just put my weight on my back foot, and it just kind of evolved from there. And that year in AAA, I had a great year. The next year, I made it to the big leagues, you know, to stay. I was there in 78, but I actually made it to stay in 80. And so it was It was just a – I don't know. You know, everybody said it was weird, goofy, whatever. All I know is so I wasn't going to change. And I – it worked, and and uh, you know I had a blast doing it. So I didn't, I didn't look at it as being goofy. I just looked at it as something that worked. And it's especially interesting because Rance himself, from the left side, had his own unique stance as well. Whatever the combination was, it clearly worked for for the club. And I wonder that in in an era that was the pre-steroid era one filled with some really legendary baseball players who really caught your eye as maybe someone that you were hoping to model your own play after that by today's standards would we would look at and say wow that was an exceptional baseball player well there were there were a lot of guys uh, and a lot of guys that people don't even realize i asked people when i was coaching i asked guys you guys remember george brett nobody has an idea who george brett was and so it's really weird but there's uh, Robin Yount, George Brett, Rod Carew, Cecil Cooper. Those are the guys that I really, really admired. And I wanted to, you know, kind of be – I knew I wasn't going to be as good as them because I just didn't have the 
the talent that those guys possess. But it's something that I tried to model my game after. And, you know, those guys were, were special players. I loved the way they played. Um, I thought Robin Yount and George Brett were the two best players I've ever played against. Mm-hmm. And it was just fun to compete against them, fun to play against them, you know, and be in battles against them. Because just a great time, just a great time to be playing baseball. I just really loved that era. And I'm so glad that I got to play in that era. And, of course, you mentioned players, Garth, that many people would put in the Blue Jays' uh, gallery of villains and rogues who thwarted the team from maybe reaching certain goals. I mean, you mentioned Robin Yount, and I immediately think, of course, as well, of George Brett, uh, Alan Trammell, Hall Molitor. These seem to be perennial villains that found a way to always prevent the team, one way or another, from reaching the perch it needed to. What did you? What did you maybe ascribe that to like what was how did these types of narratives form was it a case where teams were so eager and competitive that they would stop at nothing to find ways to beat a team or were there just certain players that were so good that no matter what you threw at them they always found a way to beat you in their last at bat well those are great players and we had great players too i mean we had george bell and you know our outfield was amazing our shortstop was amazing our pitching was fantastic i mean we played right with those guys and a lot of times you know, beat them head up. But um, I think at that time, the talent base across from from one to nine guys, or even all 25 guys on your club, they were amazing. It was amazing how good the teams were. I mean, if you look at like the American League East when we played in it, it was just like, oh my gosh, the Yankees, Baltimore was great. Yankees were great. Detroit was great. Uh, Milwaukee drove us absolutely nuts the way they played. I and mean, we just couldn't beat those guys. And really the only, you know, if you want to say easy team, they had a great lineup. They just didn't have the pitching the rest of us had was the Cleveland Indians. You know, and that was, but that division was just like, it was like crazy hard. And I don't, you don't see that. You don't see that from top to bottom like you do nowadays. I mean, you have two or three teams, sometimes two, you know, at the very top, and the rest of them just kind of are playing. But, you know, that American League East at that particular time was devastating. And if you looked at and you compared it to the West, you know, the West, they'd win 80, you know, in the high 80s and win their division. If you didn't win 99 or 100 games, you didn't win our division. And we played the exact same schedule. Yeah. And who would have thought that back in the 80s when we were busy mocking the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians as perennial losers, that 30 years later, they would be the toast of baseball. Go figure. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And that, that, that stadium, I mean, that when I played, Cleveland Stadium was a – nobody wanted to play there. It was terrible, you know. And then all of a sudden they get that new stadium and it's beautiful. The city, you know, you talk about a, you know, a metamorphosis of that city. You know, the city became really good, but nobody wanted to play there. Nobody wanted to go on a road trip there. It was awful. And now it's a great place. That's a good point. The economics of the game have changed, haven't they? Especially when it comes to teams that invest in in their in their big parks. And, of course, we saw that ultimately in 1989. Do you ever have any regrets, regardless of how endearing Exhibition Stadium was? And it was to me, spending many chilly Aprils and Mays watching the Blue Jays, for you as a player, do you sometimes say to yourself, 
man, I sure wish I'd been around just a little bit longer to enjoy the, uh, the heated confines of the Sky Dome. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I said all the time, I wish I could have played there. I wish I, you know, that's what, the one big thing in my career was, you know, in 87, I had a terrible year, and rightly so, I was no longer a value to the Blue Jays, and I didn't get picked up, but it was, uh, you know, I would have loved to have played in the Sky Dome. I coached there, but I would have loved to have played there. And it's interesting that you brought up 1987. I want to get your thoughts. This is a question I've been wanting to ask. I think someone like you who had the bird's eye view or the direct on-field experience, in 1985, that Blue Jays team, I consider personally to be the most all-around impressive team you could argue in franchise history. The, the depth in particular positions that Bobby Cox was able to utilize in 85 is the reasons why the team almost staked up 100 wins and was a force to be reckoned with in the playoffs. We talked about George Brett, the buzzsaw that was George Brett. But then in 1987, this was also a team that probably had the most impressive singular performances. Who can forget what George Bell and Jimmy Key and Tony Fernandez were doing that year? How do you compare the two teams knowing that they were both championship caliber and that had certain things gone differently, they both easily could have won a World Series championship? Well, I think injuries killed us down the going down the stretch in uh eighty seven. We lost Ernie, we lost Tony, you know, we're you know, we were kinda of playing with two of our better players out of the lineup. And so that was that was that was tough. You know, Manny Lee was a fine fill in, but he wasn't Tony Fernandez and Buck was you know, Buck Martinez was there but still we didn't have I don't know, we just didn't have you know, that left-handed bat that we needed out of Ernie. We go into Detroit. Without those guys, it was a very, very tough thing to overcome. And, of course, myself as a young tyke, I believe I was in Newtonbrook Bolorama in Toronto, and we were watching the game on television. I was 13 at the time, and I watched your final at-bat in 1987. And even though it was a, a horrible thing for fans to experience, I'm sure for you as a player it must have been much worse. What was it like for you to have to digest the fact that that 1987 team, if not the injuries, if not uh, a few balls that made some t terrible bounces or did some crazy things? I mean, sometimes you look back, Garth, and say to yourself that if one believes in baseball gods that – what happened in 85 and, of course, with the uh, playoff format changed from five games to seven when your team had a three-to-one lead, and in 87, losing the last seven games, was it a little bit of baseball karma then that the teams in 92 and 93 were finally able to bring the championship to the city after what had been a, a, an amazing stretch of quality baseball? I think so. You know, it's no fun making the last out of a game, I guarantee you that, but it's, uh, you know, it was... They had it. That was a great game, you know. Frank Tanana, Jimmy Key were just brilliant. The night, the day before, you know, Mike Flanagan for us was brilliant. You know, we just could score runs, and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, there were eight other guys in there, and we we just struggled. We just couldn't get on track the way we wanted to get on track, and it very frustrating. Um, something that eats at you and then you know it, it goes away you know i mean baseball is baseball it's not life and death and so but it was it was very very tough to deal with and um you know it, it, like i said before it's a great time to play and those teams i don't know you know you just had to keep fighting at the end and, and you know the great players come away with being able to do that Unfortunately for us, we had great players, but we weren't able to get the job done in both those situations. 
And of course, the game truly, I think we can agree, it's in your blood. After you retired in, in 1987, finishing your career with the Jays, you spent time with the Brewers, you did some coaching, you were involved with baseball, I think, up until about 2014. And then afterwards, I, I did my own research on you, Garth, and, and I was thrilled to discover that your entire family truly is, you might call them acolytes of the wonderful celestial power of baseball. Your brother, uh, you ended up facing in the 1985 ALCS against Kansas City, Dane. Uh, you've got three sons who were involved in professional baseball, and your daughter also played in NCAA softball. So, so tell me, Garth, and let my audience appreciate, what is it about this game that has taken the Orch family and brought them to a completely wonderful place of day-to-day lifestyle and existence? I don't know. It's allowed us to see the world, literally see the world, and do things we never thought possible. Both my, All three of my sons played professionally and they had you know certain things that happened where they didn't quite make it to the big leagues and that's fine and my daughter played but we absolutely loved playing the game the game was in our blood you know we just um it was fun it was fun i mean my wife watched me but there was nothing more nerve-wracking for me than to watch my kids you know so it it was fun it was exciting i had two sons i had one son playing the well, one of my sons, Isaac, played in the Little League World Series, and my mm-hmm. other son, one of my sons, Eli, played in the College World Series. And so, uh, you know, those are fun times, and uh, baseball's been great to the Orch family. Do you still take the time to follow the current Toronto Blue Jays team? Um, not so much my kids, because they're busy in their own life, but I do. I, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I... You know, I, I'm still a Blue Jay at heart. I, I, you know, I want the Blue Jays to win. I you know, I follow them. I root for them. I want, you know, I want the very best for them. And it's, you know, um, you know, it's made my life. I mean, going to Toronto has just been such a blessing for my whole family that it's just been fantastic place. We love it. You know, I am a Blue Jay fan. You know, there are certain periods when I was coaching there that I wasn't a fan of who was running it, you know, but I, that's now left. And so it's, it's great mm-hmm. to see the new regimes take over and hopefully they'll do a great job and go back to what you know was done with Paul Beeson the way he ran the club but yeah you know I love the Blue Jays you know so and I want them to win so it's fun maybe maybe you could do me a favor and elaborate a little bit on what you just said regarding Paul Beeson the way he ran the club the reason I say that is because we know that the current regime here in the city is under a lot of heavy criticism, especially coming off of a 76-win season. And and you've experienced much worse in your playing career, if I believe, especially in 79 and 80. Those were really difficult years. But back then, there was a lot of patience and a new, a complete new brand of fan. Now this market has the, the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, and the millennials, and it just seems like this regime is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. What was so unique about the way Paul and Pat ran this club that maybe will be very difficult for today's Blue Jays front office to duplicate? Well, like you said, it was a different time, but the rules were still in place that are rules today. Six-year free agents, arbitration, all those things were still in place when I played. So it's, uh, uh, I just think that we created, or they created, uh, truly a family atmosphere. I know a lot of teams talk about creating a family atmosphere, and I don't think there's a whole lot of success in doing that. But I think what happened at that in the 80s and going into the 90s with the leadership of 
Paul and, and Pat, that, uh, you know, I mean, you could walk into into Paul's office and it was just like, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was awesome. He just treated you, you know, like so great. I mean, there's a president of the Blue Jays and he's just the greatest guy in the world. Still is. You know, he has time for everybody. And I think that's the biggest thing is that they had time for you. You know, they were in the clubhouse. You you wanted to see him. You wanted to be around him. You know, when they left, and I was a coach up there, and shortly after that, Gord Ash got fired. And when Gord Ash got fired, I think everything changed. You know, they brought in J.P. Ricciardi, who was just not that way. Nothing against mm-hmm. him, but just the way that he ran the club was completely different. It became, I don't know, you know, the personality was taken out of it, and we became like everybody else. And I, I think that was what was unique. I remember when I was even coaching, you know, in the Blue Jays minor league system, that, you know, everybody wanted to be a Blue Jay. Every other coach in every other organization wanted to be with the Blue Jays. Players wanted to be Blue Jays because they knew how the system was ran and they knew that, you know, that there was never a negative thing coming from an employee of the Blue Jays to another organization. There was none of that. You know, we felt so lucky to be a part of it, and other organizations were very, very envious of that. Sure that the Yankees were, you know, would, you know, they were the Yankees, but they didn't have what we had at that particular mm-hmm. time, and I don't think anybody did. And so that was what's different. I think it's hard to capture that. I think you got to have a person who is, you know, has a personality, but Paul Beeson to do that again. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's you know, just treating people good, treating people mm. right, uh, caring about them. And I think that was felt by all the players. When I got let go by the Blue Jays, I didn't – there was no remorse. I mean, it was, I didn't – you know, I wanted to keep playing. Don't get me wrong. I still wanted to be a Blue Jay, but I, there was nothing I could fault from the Blue Jays' side of it. And that's the way everybody felt when they left the organization. You know, they, they left on – tremendous terms and I think that's just so hard to duplicate if you don't have a Paul Beeson there it doesn't happen and of course it's no coincidence then that in the absence of those values and everything you just so eloquently mentioned that uh, the team would go through almost a quarter of a century of not making it to the playoffs which speaking uh, as someone who experienced five appearances between ages 13 to 21 that also led to two world championships are we then not surprised at all that fans would be this disgruntled? I mean, it seems like there's a real disconnect more than ever, Garth, in the way fans perceive a club that, as you just identified, was known for those family values, was known for being very approachable, accessible, relatable to the fans, and instead is slowly turning into a more of a corporate, typical American franchise-run entity. Well, I hope it's not. You know, I I hope it doesn't turn out that way because I still think there's, you know, that's what sports is supposed to be like. You know, we've gotten so carried away. And I, I, I love the way the, I love the metric systems in baseball. I, I, I subscribe to them. I think they work. I think, but I think other things work as well. And so if you can blend the two and you find the personalities that fit, you know, I think that one of the bad things is when people just go on metrics alone is that, you know, you lose your personality. Yeah. You know, and I think there's, I think there's guys in the, that, they're great clubhouse guys that, that, you know, do a good job, and 
you know, maybe their metrics aren't as great as what you'd like them to be, but the other things that you can't measure are. And I think that's what happens. I think that's what you lose. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, go, mm-hmm. when you go solely on that. It's interesting you mentioned that because what came to mind in thinking about the era that you were involved in with baseball was how the Blue Jays ultimately went out and brought that, those same villains and, and obstacles to postseason success and had them play for them when many of them weren't even that effective. You know, I think back to Jack Morris and Ricky Henderson with the Blue Jays, and really their contributions were well below what would have been anticipated through the sabermetrics community. But just having them on your team seemed to signify the changing of, that, of the guard that, you know, now we're ready to taste the ultimate uh, wine and thrills that come with winning a championship. Absolutely. And, and I remember talking to Dave Winfield a couple of years ago. I mean, here's a guy who's a Hall of Famer, and you ask him a special time, it'll be with the Blue Jays. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of like at the end of his career. I mean, that's his special time when he thinks about his career. It was, you know, the time, he, the, time the year he's with the Blue Jays and won a, a World Series is incredibly special to him. And I think that that's. Uh, I don't know. That's what we had. You know, I remember when we got Roger Clemens over, you know, uh, when we signed him as a free agent, he came over and he mm-hmm. said, geez, I never experienced this in Boston. You know, this mm-hmm. is amazing. I was at a dinner one time and, and you know, uh, it was a dinner with, um, you know, the minor league staff and Paul. And that's what he did. He always went out to dinner with people and, you know, in watch Roger Clemens, Clemens presenting Paul Beeson with a Rolex watch. And I'm going, I wonder any of the other presidents in baseball have gotten a Rolex watch from their star player. You know, I just, I mean, that's how much people thought of him. And so I think it's very interesting. Have the Blue Jays, in your opinion, Garth, done a good job of reaching out to players in the past and keeping the alumni community strong and vibrant for fans of the next generation? Yes, they have. They have. And I, I, I and I I've been a part of it a few times and it's been a wonderful experience to go back up to Toronto playing their Blue Jay charities, their golf course, their golf tournaments and being a part of all that. And I think they brought the eighty five team back one time and that was a ball seeing everybody. You know, and I I hope they continue to do that stuff because I think it's really, really important. I think but you know, there's got to be more fan access to those players yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and I think it's fun for the fans. We had a reception at this '85 Blue Jay thing, and and you know, it was at a hotel. And I walk into the the hotel lounge where they're having a, you know, like a little get together, and the place is wall to wall people. I couldn't believe it that that many people still realized. Mm-hmm. You know what was done in '85, and, and knew everybody. It was it was amazing. It was it was a lot of fun. It was many young kids in Toronto growing up mimicking your batting stance, or or Tony's sidearm throw, or Jesse's cannon arm. I mean that team. They may not be household names to people outside. I think uh, you know south of the border and, and and down in the states. But to those who were fans of this team it's hard to forget a lot of those indelible images. So I, I want to wrap this up by asking you a, a question. If I were to give you the opportunity to be the GM and president of this team today, what do you think you would do 
that might give fans a reason to be optimistic about what the future holds, knowing that you follow the team and you're probably aware of what prospects they might have. What would you do if you had one thing that you could to make things seem like they're headed in the right direction? I would, I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, like I know I, uh, first of all, I don't know the economics of what economic system that those guys are working under. And that has a big, big influence on what you're doing. But I would I would try to get back where I'd have players really accessible, and maybe they are. But you know, like visit schools, do different things. Um, we did that. That was fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 visit hospitals, do things to get your name out there, or to get the people out there where they can be see that hey, these are real guys. These are real guys that are, you know, got special ability, but they're still they're just really good people. And I think that really helps. And I think it. The other thing, the other side benefit of that is that, believe it or not, players see other sides of players they never saw before when they see them, how they treat a kid in a hospital bed. You know, your teammates see, man, I didn't know George Bell was like that. You know, I didn't know that, you know, Jesse was that influential in helping this kid get over this or whatever. You know, those are the things that I think really, uh, you know, have a big personality. So if I was a GM, you know, taking the dollars and cents and the trailer trades and, you know, whether you get rid of Josh Donaldson or whatever you do, you know, I would really, really try to hit that next generation of Blue Jay players to be really community oriented. That's a great point. It truly is considering how, how crucial it is in those um, early years of any new regime. I mean, it's really like a cycle, isn't it? Even though the team still has the same name, we look at the players today and we're getting to that point that you'll find very few that were with the team as far back as maybe 2012, 2011. That's not really a long time ago, was it? No, and you'll you'll see the turnovers that are just enormous right now mm-hmm. with these guys. I remember I was with the Blue Jay, with the Brewers and you know, my last year was 2014. You know, I turned him on last year and saw a game, and I'm going, geez, that guy wasn't there. This guy, you know, the whole team had changed. You know, it's just except for yeah. Ryan Braun, everybody else was different. It was just, it's incredible how what the change in the turnover is. And so, you know, I think that hurts a little bit. But I think fans want to win. It's fun to be around a winner. And I think, but I think there's a lot of ways to accomplish that. Sure, you got to have great players, but I think if you let those have a bond between those players and develop that, then you have something special. And and I'd be remiss if we didn't give one plug out to uh, our mutual friend, Jesse Barfield. I wanted to ask you, can we both agree that he should be on the level of excellence for the Blue Jays up in uh, the Rogers Center? Yeah, and there's a, you know, probably a few other guys as well. But, you exactly. know, I mean, this guy was, this guy was a, you know, he was a great player for us. And, you know, we, we see him offensively, but, I mean, he he was a tremendous defensive player. And those stats do not, I don't know, people don't remember that. They, oh, they had a great arm. He had a great arm, but he was incredibly accurate as well. Mm-hmm. And so you couple those two things together, you have something special. There's a lot of guys that had great arms, but they didn't know where it was going. Jesse could throw it where he wanted it. And that was a, that was a big asset. He was He was just a fabulous player. You know, but we had Tom Hinkey, Dwayne Ward, you know, Jimmy Key, you know, Tom, I mean, Jim Clancy, you know, my gosh, Clancy was awesome. 
you know, mm-hmm. and he's kind of overshadowed by Dave Steve. But Jim Clancy is an amazing player, was an amazing pitcher for us. And I just, there's a lot of guys on that team that I think that people just forgot. But, you know, honestly, Clancy, when you talk to um, opposing players, you know, they come into Toronto and they go, oh, my gosh. We look at, the first thing we do is look at who's pitching. If we got Clancy and Steve, we're in trouble. You know, and so that was, you know, and I don't, I don't think half the people even remember Jim Clancy. Which is such a shame because I think between Steve Clancy and Key, you could have argued that that was the most dominant one, two, three in any starting rotation. And to see them all have their peak years, that was a thing I noticed about the teams you were part of, Garth. It seemed like every year someone would have their career year. One year it would be Willie Upshaw. One year it would be Tony Fernandez. One year it would be Ernie Witt. That must have really astonished. I mean, even you had your own career year in 85, which, of course, must have brought the best of luck to the team because they got into the postseason. Yeah, I just think. But you know what? That's part of just being around each other for a few years. And I think that really helps. I really believe that helps. And you win games. I think you win games a lot of times when you um, when you're playing for more than just yourself, and that when you're playing, become a team player. Do you win games that sometimes you're not supposed to win? And I think that happens. And those mm-hmm. things aren't measured in metrics. No doubt, no doubt. So, and I, but again, I'm a yeah. big fan of metrics, you know. But there's more than that. It still reminds me of those arguments I used to have when I was younger as to whether or not George Bell truthfully should have won that MVP in 1987 over the dreaded Alan Trammell. And even though the sabermetrics community keeps telling me Trammell should have won, in my heart we both know that kind of season and what he did. It was just a shame at the end, I suppose, because if memory serves, I think George really struggled during that last week to battle for the AL East, which is such a shame because yeah, that he year did. was monstrous. Yeah, it was. And he was he was an amazing. We'd never get there without George. We're never in that position mm. without him. Absolutely. So. Just a truly a great team. Garth, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for taking the time to do this, for visiting with us on the show. Just having these recollections and re- nostalgic reflections alone has truly made the early part of my 2018. And, of course, Todd, both Todd and Tom, uh, Stottlemyre and Hanky promised me that they'd find time for the show this month. So maybe we can get all three of you and we'll do some kind of great round table panel based show talking about some of the best things about those eighties teams that in my opinion ever. Oh, that would be know. fun. Both those guys are fantastic guys. <laughs> you know. They are absolutely. Thanks so. again for doing this, Garth. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Jay's Journal podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Next up on the Jays Journal podcast, it's my pleasure to bring on Richard Burfer and Dan Sagan from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network in their regular installment looking at the Blue Jays minor league talent, in particular their top pitching prospects. Let's turn it over to Richard and Dan who give us their thoughts on TJ Zoik, Nate Pearson, and Ryan Barucki. Take it away, boys. Uh, thanks for having us on board on another podcast. It's always great talking baseball with you, Ari. Um, what we're going to do today is talk about the, t- the top three farmhands for the Toronto Blue Jays. Over the past few years, the Jays have really restocked their farm system, and it's getting really exciting over here. So the uh, the three guys we picked were TJ Zoic, Nate Pearson, and Ryan Barucki. These are all three pitchers with kind of different backgrounds, and uh, you know, all have something interesting about them. So in terms of TJ Zoic, that's the top pitching arm for the in the Blue Jays system. 
Uh, his really coming out party was at the Arizona Fall League. Um, there's nothing to not like about this guy. Uh, big frame, long arms, um, lanky, 6'7", six, 6'6". Six, six. Um, the way he pitches is super effective. He pitches downhill effectively. Um, Two-seam fastball, gets a lot of stink on it. He sits 92-94, touches 97. And really ha his curveball is a nice pitch for him as well. It's a true 12-6 break. Um, and really the, the big thing for him moving forward is going to be his changeup. If he can develop that changeup to get a third pitch, he can be in the Jays' rotation in the future. So far it's just a good fastball, a plus curveball, and really the changeup is going to be the next thing for him. Yeah, what I really like about Zoic is basically he has a calm, repeatable delivery, and that's you know something you yep. see in guys like Aaron Sanchez, and uh, you know the Jays really love that about him. And uh, you know he uses the size really well, like you said, and it's just repeatable, very minimal. And another thing I like about him is his age. He's only going to yep. be 22 for most of the 2018 season, and he'll probably pitch in Double A at some point, if not start there. Mm -hmm. So that's a great place to be for a 22-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, moving on to Pearson. Yeah, uh, Nate Pearson is guy, probably my favorite pitcher in the Blue Jays system. And the funny thing is, I I had not heard of him before he got drafted. There were guys like Warmuth and Hagen Danner, who uh, guys I really liked coming into the draft. But Pearson, I didn't really know who he was. After finding out about this, you know, huge guy who touches a hundred, there's a lot to like. You know, he's uh, he came out of junior college, which I respect that as well. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, he's a guy who throws hard and he throws strikes. Yeah, that's and... uh, one thing about him that's kind of underrated is his command. He uh, walks like maybe two, three guys per nine innings, mm. and uh, that's something I appreciate as well. Yeah, the big thing for Pearson now is just going to be to develop his secondary stuff. Uh, he started throwing his slider more with the C Canadians over in Vancouver. So what's, what he has to do now is just keep working at it, and he has the stuff to be a really good starting pitcher on, on the major league level, and it seems like the Blue Jays are hoping that he can become that starter, that starting pitcher. Uh, yeah. Lastly, we're going to go with Ryan Baraki. Um, different uh, background for this guy. Uh, he was a 15th round pick in 2012. He underwent uh, Tommy John surgery. And really, this past year, 2017, that's when everything just took off for the guy. Um, he went from high A to double A to triple A, and he just kept getting better and better as he went up. Um, Fastball sits 92-94. Uh, there's deception in his delivery. Um, he starts on off on the left side of the of the pitching rubber and throws from behind his back, so he really hides the ball well. And the changeup is the separator for him. Um, he started using his slider a little bit more, but it's really the changeup that makes him a really interesting prospect to look at. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's really, you know, that, like, crafty type left-hander. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, like you said, really good change-up. He doesn't throw super hard, but still mid-90s isn't mm -hmm. anything to sneeze at. He's, uh, I think he's six foot four, mm -hmm. but he is pretty skinny. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, I don't know what the Jays are saying about him, but I can imagine they want to put on at least a little bit of weight. Mm -hmm. That's probably his biggest roadblock at this point. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like you said, he shot up through the minors last year. He uh, probably started off AAA, maybe cracked the show at some point. That would be nice to see. That would be awesome. Yep. Thanks again for having us, Ari. To start us off on this brand new year of Blue Jays 
Jay's Journal Roundtable Podcast. I couldn't think of better, better individuals to bring with me than these three people who I'm enormously a fan of, first and foremost. Let's first of all introduce them. My first member of this roundtable is the Detroit Tigers minor league writer at The Athletic, Emily Walden, joins the Jay's Journal. Emily, thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure to be here. This gentleman has been heard quite recently because I just can't get enough of him. I keep asking him to come back to these round tables. He is a market practitioner and research associate at the Levy Institute. Marshall Auerbach joins us again. Marshall, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me again, Ari, and Happy New Year to you. Likewise, my friend. It's good to hear your voice. And, of course, uh, no roundtable will be complete without someone who I've always admired because he's just a phenomenal writer. He's a newspaper reporter and has bylines at the Globe and Mail, Vice Sports, Fightland, and Sportsnet. Sean W. Smith joins us. Sean, good to hear you again. Thank you very much for having me. Let's, uh, let's just get right to something that uh, I can't get out of my head that I heard earlier today, and that was a quote from Ross Atkins talking about the looming arbitration of Josh Donaldson. He was asked by several media outlets on Tim and Sid as well about his thoughts related to this process and how he's anticipating the Josh Donaldson discussions to unravel. And he said, quote, it is in my nature to focus on win-win negotiation. Arbitration is a process that ends up doing the right thing for the player and organization in most cases. Needless to say, I was not impressed. I think that is just a lot of hot air. We all know at this table from our relative experience with baseball that the arbitration process can get extremely ugly. Let's start with you, Emily. Where do you see the Josh Donaldson talks at, and what do you think fans should brace themselves for in the days to come? You know, I think really the biggest thing that would come out of this is probably going to be his current status, because I know that... He did battle some injury, I believe, last season. Um, that mm. may be a little bit of a red flag in the eyes of the front office and um, in the eyes of those involved in the whole negotiation process. But um, from what I know of Josh Donaldson, I don't see him as wanting to run from the organization. I don't believe he's that type of a player. I think he would want to try and work out something that would be mutually agreeable for all parties involved. Um, so I think it's probably going to be more of a situation of him selling himself to the organization and have them be convinced that he is worth, you know, the, the whole process of getting everything put out on the table and, you know, coming to an agreement. So I think it's going to be more on him than it would be on the front office deciding what they want to do as far as handling him moving forward. That makes sense yeah. to me. Uh, I'll kick in. And, uh just say that I think it makes um, I realize there's frustration involved here but um, you know there's been no major free agent signed yet and um, you know one of those you got to have in mind for example is Mike Moustakis so I think um, Toronto is is prudently awaiting the um, values uh, letting the market sort out the values for these guys so they can have some sort of indication of um what the negotiating parameters would be if they say wanted to do a long-term deal for Josh Donaldson. Um, I can't really say that I, I fault uh, Ross Atkins for that. Although I do wish, um, you know, he would just um, stop with the meaningless chatter. I think I've said this before on your show and, um, 
and just um, uh, um, let the market uh, come to them. Um, I, it could also be that there's a bit of an overreaction to what happened last year with Edwin Encarnacion, where they just basically gave him four days and said, right, make up your mind, and uh, then quickly moved on to Kendris Morales. So there, there may be a, an element of overcorrection. Uh, over but, um, you know, I, I would wait to see what uh, uh, Mustakis ends up signing for. I mean, I don't think he's quite the same player as uh, Donaldson, but he is younger. And um, that would be a good way for me to, uh, to see what um, he's actually likely to be getting, securing himself on the market. Yeah, I think he's going to my, – my feeling is that he's going to want to test the open market, but at the same time, I, he's made very clear that he's happy here in Toronto. He, he would like to sign here in Toronto, and I think in the perfect situation, Toronto would like to have him back as well. Uh, for me, I, I think they know roughly what he's worth. He's going to be in that, that $30 million a year sort of range. It's whether or not it's going to be a, a three-year deal, a four-year deal, a five-year deal. Obviously, the player is going to want longer, and the team's going to want shorter, so – um, it's going to be really interesting to see because, uh, you know, you mentioned Evan Encarnacion. Um, this group, um, they, they don't really like to hand out the long-term kind of riskier deals. So I, I can't really see them liking a five-year deal, but, but maybe a three-year deal, uh, I mean, would be ideal for the team, and Donaldson's going to push for more. So it's going to be that, that back and forth. And I think it's going to be less about the dollar figure and more about how long. Yeah, it, it would be kind of interesting to see whether they would go, I mean, um, whether they would um, uh, uh, go, go for, a, say, a, th- a three-year, $30 million or a, a year uh, type of arrangement, or whether they'd say long, they'll go, they'd go longer in term, but uh, for less of a, of a dollar amount. Um, I don't think three years would get it, and in, and in any case, I think they have to combine it with this year's um, arbitration deal if, they wanna, if, it, if it's going to make sense for them. But, and I don't even know, you know, frankly, if it's going to take $30 million. I mean, that's what uh, the, the overall consensus seems to be. But against that, he is 33 years old, or he'll be thir- 33 years old when he's a free agent. And um, secondly, you know, last year the, the, the received wisdom was that Edwin Encarnacion was going to get um, five years, $125 million, or you know, four years at $100 million, and he got three years at 60 of them. I mean, the best offer was one that, that Toronto gave him. So there is something to be said um, for... Uh, uh, letting the market uh, come back to them because I, I, even though I think he's a, he's one of the top three or four third basemen in the game, um, I'm not sure that um, he he would get any much more than um, 25, for example. I think 20, you know he it may and it may be that Toronto says five years at 100 mil, uh, including this year, that that might be an attractive deal for them. Sometimes the the bird in the hand uh, is, is better than the proverbial um, um, free agency in the bush. But isn't in the final analysis the courtship really everything in this process, knowing that in the romance of a a baseball player and how he's romanticized by the fans in the relationship with the front office, shouldn't there be a concern that the Blue Jays demonstrated that in Edwin's case, there was really no definitive intention of bringing him back to the team? And that if not for events the way they unfolded at the end of the year and certain political hands that needed to be played, an offer was made um, Sean, do you have that same fear in the way the Blue Jays are treating Josh Donaldson? Do you believe that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro have made the requisite overtures to show the player that, hey, in the final analysis, we really want you to come back, or is it all just lip service? No, I, I think I think they do want him to come back, but I also think they're they're very cognizant of the idea that that they're not going to overpay for him. They're not going to give him a blank check and say, you know, fill it out sort of thing. Um, I think it has to be the right deal. Um, we, we know that 2018 is a year where this team needs to win, and then it's probably some sort of rebuild after that. 
So w- with that in mind, I, I mean, they're not going to really cripple themselves three, four years down the line to make this happen in the, in the shorter term. Um, I, I think they want him back. I really do think they'd like to see him back. He is the franchise player for this team at, at this point. I just I can't see it on a five-year deal. Uh, we're seeing the league kind of trend more towards not giving guys deals past the age of 35, 36. And, and I think this this front office in particular is very, very recognizing um, of that idea. Um, my observation of Josh Donaldson when I was at spring training this past year, um, just kind of feeding off of the franchise player that he is, he is absolutely a staple for Toronto. Um, I think the front office mm-hmm. knows that. Everybody involved knows that. But unfortunately, I think in this point of the off season, and also factoring in the, the, the issue that it's been such a, quote-unquote, cold hot stove, if you will, and there's been such a delay on some of these deals going through, unfortunately, I think the teams have to take a step beyond knowing how they feel about a player, but having to take more of a businessy approach to how they want to handle this on a player-by-player basis. So I don't know if it's necessarily going to play as much of a factor knowing that he wants to stay in Toronto, knowing that they like him, knowing that he's a fan favorite. They may have to look beyond that, unfortunately, and I think everyone is sort of at the mercy of the market at this point. Yeah, and remember, Jose Bautista, bless his soul, was also a huge fan favorite. Um, and I, you know, and, and I'm sure everyone was delighted when they they picked him up last year for one more year. But it didn't turn out to be a very happy farewell. Um, and um, I would also take issue with the idea that they didn't want um, uh, Encarnacion back. They they did make him the best offer. Uh, but you know, uh, you've got um, you still got Tulo and Martin on very long term contracts. So if you also um, put Donaldson on one of those, that's three position players on long-term deals, expensive deals, and Toronto's in a, in a disadvantageous position if um, uh, he, he doesn't work out. Um, you know, they, they, they lose a lot of flexibility, even though they'll gain it as other people come off the payroll. So they, I, I think they, they do have to be a little bit, as Emily said, businesslike and bloodless about the whole thing, even though I do think they would like to have him back, and I think he'd be a, you know, if they want to draw the three million fans into the seats again, um, you know, he's, a, he's definitely a good guy to have around. Although two years from now when uh, Vladdy Guerrero's up, you know, maybe that's not going to be as important to have a new face of the franchise by then. That's a really good point, especially because, you know, they're kind of predicting that Vlad's going to be in that, you know, probably a third baseman, maybe a first baseman kind of role. Um, You know, maybe three years down the line, maybe Josh Donaldson kind of fills into that that designated hitter role a little more often and they kind of ease Vlad in. I mean, that's saying that they keep Josh Donaldson, but uh, it's really interesting to think of it from that perspective that they have these guys that are are getting very close, you know, Vlad Guerrero specifically. Yeah, and I don't think they have to uh, necessarily, um, you know, I still think they do need to rebuild their farm system so that you don't want to drain their prospects and you don't want to, but you don't want to hold these guys back either. Um, but I, I, I do I, I do think that, um, uh, that, that there's a sort of um, an existential decision they have to make at some point. I mean, do you want to just like keep rebuilding on the fly a la the, um, the 2012 New York Yankees, the way they did it, uh, with, with the way that the, the Brian Cashman did it, or yeah. do you want to do? And I'm sure Emily's uh, more has some thoughts about this. Do you want to do it the way that the Detroit Tigers uh, are doing, which is in the more conventional approach, which is that you um, you tear down to to rebuild again? My feeling is that the group would would very much rather do the, the Yankee style because we we saw that success in 2015 and 2016. 
really kind of brought the fan base, you know, across Canada, much more focused on the Blue Jays. If they can keep that momentum going, uh, obviously they, they would prefer to do that. Uh, I'd be interested to know what you guys think. Um, I mean, does the, the Andrew Solarte or El Diaz, I mean, do those deals make you think one way or the other about whether or not they would keep Josh Donaldson? Yeah, because I don't think those guys are starters. They're super subs, a couple of them. And I, I mean, I think they were really smart moves. They, they didn't have enough of those kind of players last year that could play multiple positions. And, uh, you know, you were stuck in a situation a few times where, with all the injuries they had, where, you know, Russell Martin was playing third base. So, you know, and, and they weren't, they were cost effective moves. I mean, they're, they're the kind of moves that um, have really been, typical of jo- uh, of Ross Atkins at his best in the sense that you know it's a low they're low leverage uh low uh, low risk but high upside moves um nice little uh, pieces of the puzzle um but they're not um definitive um or, or franchise shifting you know trades a la say Pat Killick with uh, Joe Carter and Robbie Alomar and they have yet to make that kind of a move and I think that's why people are still um uh, somewhat skeptical but but uh, but I I I think uh, Solarte uh was a great trade and 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 so is Diaz and I think they that those two address a lot of problems it's cost effective and it leaves them in a, in a position to make a big acquisition for an outfielder. I mean, I would personally like to see them try to get someone like Billy Hamilton or, if they're go- not going to be that aggressive, uh, Andrew McCutcheon. Um, but um, certainly they, they, they have scope to do something. And, and Atkins also said, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, that um, he thought that, um, you know, they, 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 that an outfield was something they probably would be targeting. Well, there are certain stark economic realities that, that we know that uh, Shapiro and Atkins are particularly mindful of. And I do love the segue, Sean. It was perfect timing because that was my next question. Where, whereas we know that by acquiring Aled Mistias and Jan Hervis Solarte, the team now is able to say that they uh, undeniably have infield depth, which was one of their many priorities along with considering how to shore up the outfield, how to address maybe getting a fifth starter. Uh, and one area that, of course, they didn't have to really worry about was their bullpen. Now, if we know that the team payroll is sitting at around, I believe, $146, $148 million, there is something to be said for having the dubious distinction of being the only major league club, I believe, with three position players making $20 million next year. So the question now becomes, Marshall, if you've saved all this money by getting your, your super subs, and, and I love that name because they are super subs, they are effectively quasi, uh, you might say, um, well, reclamation projects. Uh, they were purchased low when their value and upside is high. So isn't mm-hmm. this now an opportunity to take a serious run at maybe a Martinez or a Kane and justify the fact that by saving all this money, you can go after a serious investment in an outfielder? Yeah, I I do think that. Um, I think I would rather see them do it via trade if that's possible. Um, Kane is a very attractive uh, candidate, no question. Although, again, he's in his 30s. He's at an age where you know the speed will, will start coming down. And if you look at some of the metrics last year, his defense, well, excellent, wasn't as good as it was back in say 2015 with the uh, the Royals. So. 
um, he would be the one guy I would like to to, to see them uh, go for. And of course, uh, you know, it's, uh, I would love I would also love to see them make a play for Christian Yelich. But as uh, as Ross Atkins said, uh, you know, so it's, uh, there's 29 other teams that are probably interested in him as well. And I'm not sure that um, <laughs> the Jays have the um, have the prospect capital quite yet to um, to get a Yelich, uh, even though he would be a wonderful acquisition and uh, would make a lot of fans happy. But but for me, that's why, as I say, uh, Andrew McCutcheon might make sense. He'll, he'll be on. He'll be on. He'll have one more year. He's still good. He's fast. Um, he'll be playing for a big free agent contract. I don't want. I'd rather see him than say um, uh, Gomez or Gonzalez. Uh, much, of course, depends on what Pittsburgh wants for him. But he would be. He'd be one my one my uh, one of my preferences. The other one uh, would be a guy like um, Jared Dyson, who I think would work out very well in a platoon kind of arrangement with Steve Pierce in left field, and give them a lot more speed in defense. So you'd have at the corners potentially him and uh, and Teoscar Hernandez, and that would certainly address a lot of the uh, the defense issues they had last year. Although they might be still somewhat deficient on on offense. Well, let's let's focus on that then. Let's let's see if we can get. Emily's perspective on on how candid we can be about this team. Let, let's assume that the Blue Jays go out and, and shore up by uh, finding the outfielder they need. They decide that they want to move forward with and maybe bring in another pitcher. Do you genuinely believe that with the roster currently constructed the way it is with these additions, that this is the kind of team that can put fans in the seats all year round and actually make an effort to get to the playoffs next year? Oh, I absolutely do. I think even just attending um, a Tigers-Blue Jays game uh, during the regular season this past year, I'm pretty sure I saw about the same amount of Josh Donaldson jerseys as I did Miguel Cabrera jerseys. So that tells you the turnout <laughs> of the Blue Jays baseball. That, And I don't say this lightly, but I think they genuinely have one of the best fan bases in the league. Um, and I think a big thing that really speaks about them is the fact that they're willing to travel in the amount of distances that they do. It's extremely impressive. And so I think the fact that they have that loyalty going for them, I think that that's going to play in the Blue Jays' favor moving forward because when you have the fan support, obviously the players are going to feel that support. The team is going to have more confidence. And I think that will sort of ease the process of having to you know, put some fingers in the dam, so to speak, while they're getting these issues resolved and little pieces put back together. So I think that the fans will show up. I don't think that's going to be an issue at all for Toronto, and that should only play in the favor of how they do moving forward. That's a good point, I think. I think, um, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about how I, I don't know if it would still be that way if we, you know, we came out there and had a 65-win season, I think that might really dampen <laughs> some of that, you know, <laughs> like like your Tigers did. Um, but and also, if we if you trade Josh Donaldson, who like I really believe is the the franchise player, I think that would dampen a lot of that. But at this point, where we have a team that, you know, I think can contend for a wild card, we're not we're not going to win the AL East. I think that's you know too far off. But I think we can contend for a, for a wild card. Um, but even saying that, I think that's going to be a challenge when you when you look down the American League rosters. I mean, we're not better than the Red Sox. We're not better than the Yankees. We're not better than the Indians, and we're not better than the Astros. So that leaves us battling with the Twins, the Angels, you know, maybe the Rangers step back up. Um, and it gets pretty hard from there to, to uh, you know, get into that, that wild card spot. So, I mean, it's possible. We definitely need an outfielder, and we definitely still need – a starting pitcher, but 
um, it's going to be a challenge still, I think, to, to get into that wild card. Yeah, I think they can play tight with Boston. Of course, uh, if Boston gets uh, J.D. Martinez, as everyone is, as is widely rumored, then they will be definitely um, uh, a better better team. But I think um, assuming that uh, as things stand today, which of course is not the way they're going to be likely, I wouldn't say there's that much of a difference. But obviously the, uh, the Yankees are clearly... Uh, uh, with that modern-day murderers row, they're definitely the class of the uh, of the AL East, and indeed maybe the class of the entire AL right now. Will Aaron Sanchez be able to stay healthy for the entire year? Will Troy Tulowitzki and Russell Martin be able to give you at least 120 to 130 games, which most people think might be absolutely laughable? Will um, Will Steve Pierce be that left field option so that you could then go ahead and try a relative unknown in right field and give an Alfred or a Hernandez a chance? About about the only part of the team that I think we can all smile and say, well, that's definitely a strength is the bullpen. There were so many names that were able to shine and gain confidence in that and this frivolous of last year that I have no doubt that if we have a lead past the seventh inning, we're in good shape, maybe even the fifth. But Marshall. Yeah. Are you are you satisfied to be able to look at this team and accept the fact that it won't nearly be as bad as last year? We can safely say that. But is there enough? Yeah, assuming no more injuries. Well, the, the injuries we know the team can't control. The redundancy yes. is something they couldn't do last year, and it bit them in the ass. We know that. Yeah. That's why we. Had, yeah. That's why we had games featuring Rob Ref Snyder and Rafi Lopez and Miguel Montero. Yeah, and that and that's been solved by uh, Diaz and and, and Solarte. You're right. So then, are are you confident enough, assuming that all things play themselves out equally and you have a, a solid starting rotation, why can't this team compete on a day-in, day-out basis with the Red Sox and the Yankees if they've got quality innings coming every game? Yes, I agree. I agree. I think if uh, if Sanchez is back to the pitcher he was in, in uh, 2016, and uh, the, 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 there's... And the, and the injuries uh, aren't there, then um, yeah, assuming that, assuming they they still do something in the outfield because I even even as things stand today with um, Teoscar Hernandez in right field, um, they are better than they were last year with Jose Bautista there, but they need a lot more. Um, but again, I I I can't believe they're not they're they're not going to make another move or two, so I'm going to withhold a judgment. I, I I don't think there's a, I think the little fixes have been made. There's still a couple of um, larger fixes that they need to make. And, um, you know, uh, the next few weeks, I think, are going to be very telling. And I I think for sure we need a starting pitcher as well because we're really one blister away from being down one of our our best starters. So I I think a, a, you know, a fairly respectable four or five starting pitcher is is absolutely necessary. Uh, We saw the the struggles that Marco Estrada had last season. If those return, I mean, we we need more than just Joe Biagini back there. So, um, you know, I agree. I, I think we we have to have one more somewhat quality starter. It seems as though the team has about twenty million dollars still to work with. Um, you know, do do you spend that on? Do you spend like seventeen of that on a Lorenzo Cain and then get a, a worse pitcher? Or do you try and split it evenly between an outfielder and a starter? I don't really know, but I'm really interested to see, you know, how the team approaches this. Yeah. That's that's going to be the the really telling uh, decision. One of the guys that I I I kind of think that might be okay to look at would be someone like Chris Tillman. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he he knows the division well, and he seemed to pitch well uh, for the most part when he was um, when he pitched in Toronto um, uh, last year. Anyway, the year before not so much. Um, But if they can get him in a good contract, 
I, I don't think they're going to be playing for the big boys, you know, the U Darwiches, the Jake Arrietas, or even the Alex Cobbs for that matter. But it'll be interesting to see who they do acquire. But I agree. I, I, I'd rather see uh, Biagini in, back in, the, in, in, a, in a quasi-swing role um, and get another guy to, uh, to be their number five starter. Yeah. I have a question for Emily. Um, you, you've seen a lot of your, your, your bigger talent guys um, kind of go out of the city recently. I'm thinking of a Verlander. Uh, when, when you look at someone like a Josh Donaldson, um, what do you think uh, a trade for him w- would look like? I mean, how, how much do you think that the Blue Jays would have to get back? You know, I would say at least probably, I know obviously his age is a factor, and we all know in baseball when you hit early 30s, you're basically 75 in people years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that part of it, unfortunately, will work a little bit against him. But I think he's mm-hmm. definitely, I would say a, probably a top two prospect return would be an ideal request for him. Um, as far as what system you're pulling that from is another story. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you see the exchanges between some of the more powerful systems like the Yankees, and then you look at someone like the Angels, who really has to dig as deep as possible to try and pull out guys who are going to measure up to the value of what they're requesting. So I would yeah. say for Don- Donaldson, I would say at least a two-top-end prospect return wouldn't be too much to ask. That's especially fascinating knowing that if the Blue Jays were able to obtain that kind of prospect treasure trove, adding to the 2019 anticipated ascension of Bichette and Guerrero, Emily, you could argue that the Blue Jays could find themselves as one of the most exciting, young, dynamic teams in the league, something that uh, their their hockey counterparts are now being effectively uh, renowned for. Maybe maybe that should be shouldn't that from from certain fans' perspectives that shouldn't that be the course that they should stay and and find a way to take what is a diminishing aging asset and turn it into gold for the future. Well, I definitely think that they're in a similar position with what I've been watching with Detroit. Um, I think that uh, Toronto's issues don't go nearly as deeply as the Tigers do. Obviously, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but I think what every team is going to have to do is realize a lot of these big household names that we've all gotten used to following, you know, over the last, you know, eight to ten years, they're getting older. And so whether you have a solid lineup that's major league ready, you're going to have to start looking down the pipeline a little bit and really asking yourself, do we have the reserve that we can tap into if somebody has a hamstring issue, if somebody hurts their shoulder, who do we have to fill these spots? And so I think a lot of teams, because there's more teams than one that's looking to have to kind of fill some of those gaps and do a little bit of a rebuild, whether major or minor, depending on your organization. And minor league baseball is becoming a priority, whether teams want it to or not. It's taking a shift in that direction, and I think teams are really having to prioritize to see what they have to, to tap into and what they're going to have to do to shift some pieces around to really strengthen that foundation. Do you think, uh, Dan Lee, that, that um, Detroit's um, priority, or at least the, the model they, they were using, did that shift when uh, Mike Illich passed away? I mean, it, 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 it seems like um, the Sun uh, doesn't seem to be win it, as much of a win-at-all-cost type of um, uh, owner. But again, I'm looking at it from a distance, and um, so I might be wrong about that. So I'm curious to hear your opinion. I think he really he holds the team in high regard. I don't think that he is as much a throw it all on the table and hope for the best 
to the intensity that Mike Illich did. Um, I think what he is realizing, because there were some, some concerns and some rumors that he would consider selling the team, um, and I believe he was pretty quick to steal those rumors and let everybody know. He said, you know what, I want to see this organization do well, but I think he's having to approach it from more of a business perspective. And there's some moves that have to be made. Some of them aren't very pretty. Um, some of them have had to be very, very creative. And I think that he is willing to invest. I think we're probably going to see at least another two years of less than enjoyable baseball. Uh, we can all hope for the best, but um, I think it is going to be challenging for at least a good two years, possibly even three. But I think you're going to start seeing some of these top-end arms that the Tigers have been stashing away for so long slowly but surely start to creep up over the next two years. And we could see some as soon as 2019, 2020, I think is when you're going to see some of those names pop up in the major league lineup. And if they could, I'm sure they would love to uh, trade Miguel Cabrera, but uh, which again shows the the dangers of you know you paying one of your big superstars for on a long term deal mm-hmm. and, and near the end of it, you know that's that's mm-hmm. something that um, I'm sure Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro have got to think about with Josh Donaldson. I definitely think that that is the case that they're having to really look at all of the contracts involved. Obviously, you saw that they're yeah. not afraid to move guys with the shift of Justin Verlander, Ian Kinsler, J.D. Martinez, all of these guys who moved on to new organizations. Obviously, going back to the whole whether the organization likes these guys, sometimes you don't have a choice. And I think with Detroit, it really was taking a dose of very unenjoyable medicine and saying, if we want to bring a World Series to the city, we have to start making some massive moves. And that's what they did. There was a lot of contract dumps and a lot of young investment, um, a couple of uh, lottery tickets, if you will. And unfortunately, it's going to take some time with the whole development process, watching these guys figure out who they are. You know, you hope that they all pan out. Some of them you don't know. I mean, they picked up multiple guys who are still 18, 19 years old. Um, and unfortunately, not everyone can be Boba Shat and Vladimir Guerrero <laughs> So that side of things, you know, you, you put your cards out there. You hope that the scouts know what they're talking about, and you really have to look ahead to the future and say, how do we get to that ultimate goal, and what pieces do we need to put into place in the meantime? Are there any significant, with Detroit, are there any significant turnaround candidates, the guys that could, you know, kind of figure it out so that maybe Detroit's not a, a 64-win team this year. I look at like a, you know, a Jordan Zimmerman or, or a Matthew Boyd. Maybe they could figure it out. Michael Fulmer could take that next step. Daniel Norris, who we, we know here in Toronto and love here in Toronto, uh, you know, it, it feels like he could maybe take that next step. Are, are there guys that you look at as like maybe guys that could figure it out and maybe this team won't be quite as bad as, as what they're being predicted to be? You know, I think there are a few guys that could definitely step up this season. I think the biggest challenge with Daniel Norris, and my conclusion on him is that there is no part of the country or probably the planet that dislikes Daniel Norris. I think Daniel yeah. Norris is one of the most likable people. <laughs> um, so we love him, yeah. That, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And just the fact that there's multiple people on the 40-man roster right now for Detroit that could – come through, I think that's the biggest challenge. We we had a lot of health issues with Daniel Norris last season. Um, for Matt Boyd, it was more of a psychological thing. Um, he didn't have as many of the health problems. It was more of him figuring himself out. 
Um, Joe Jimenez, who's the big power closer that they've been working to kind of groom, he had a lot of psychological issues. It's a lot of can you step up to that level and can you handle the pressure and know what you're able to bring to the table. And so I think also with Jordan Zimmerman, we are wanting to see him figure it out, but I think the fact that he isn't getting younger and that he has had the struggles and the health issues that he faced this last season, that's going to be an uphill battle for him because I don't know how long necessarily the Tigers grace period is going to be for him, Um, but I think that they absolutely want all of these guys to figure it out, but they're really going to have to prioritize and figure out what kind of a timeline they're working with. Boy, I'll tell you, if you're a fan of both the Toronto Blue Jays and the Detroit Tigers, this is the podcast episode for you, especially (laughs) considering that... uh, that Garth Orch, who, who led off with the interview on this show, reminisced a great deal about uh, the battles that the Blue Jays had against the Detroit Tigers, which is one of the reasons why we brought up the issue of the, the uh, Hall of Fame voting, Alan Trammell and Jack Morris. But what was especially fascinating were his comments on the evolution of the designated hitter. I mean, there was a time when you had designated hitters who platooned regularly. You don't see that as often. These days you have one player who signed on the team to be the designated hitter, and you roll the dice and hope that you get production, something the Blue Jays did not get any of last year with Kendris Morales. He's kind of the forgotten man in the ship. I looked up some statistics and found out that the designated hitter, his splits as a, a against position players last year, the designated hitter was actually lower than any other position. Sean, why do you think that is? Shouldn't the designated hitter be that one spot in your lineup where you have someone who's money in the bank? Why are we seeing so many teams struggle with finding productivity out of the DH slot? Uh, my feeling, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say, but my feeling is that maybe people aren't spending as much money on the position as maybe they have in the past. And also, it's also becoming just like a dead spot for teams to put a guy that can no longer play a position. I think of like an Albert Pujols in, in Los Angeles where you know he, he was – he still has this massive contract. They need to find something for him to do. He clearly can't play a position. He, he has to be the designated hitter. Uh, as his hitting, you know, at one time it was absolutely fantastic. Now it's, you know, about league average, if not worse than that. Um, and I think we see that across the league. We're seeing teams kind of fill that, that designated hitter position with, with players like that, where they, where they sign a big contract and maybe it's just a guy that, that can no longer play the position. Um, Kendris Morales in particular, when I, when I look at his contract, uh, if, if if the team can find a way to deal that contract, I think that would free up some money. Uh, but but obviously that's not going to be an easy move to make. Yes, I think that's every Toronto Blue Jays fan's fantasy is to get rid of that contract. But um, yeah. you know, not going to happen. I don't think, unfortunately. Well, one thing's for sure. There'll be no shortage of intrigue associated with many positions that the Blue Jays are looking at for for spring training. It's hard to believe that that we are uh, almost a month away from pitchers and catchers reporting, which is great news Mm -hmm. for those diehard baseball fans who've been putting up with an abysmal winter and waiting for what the Warriors of Spring have to bring them. Let's go around the horn now. I want to quickly ask you all what you're up to and how you can be found on social media by our listening audience. Let's go with uh, Emily and then Marshall and Sean. What are you working on and where can my fans find you? Yeah, my primary Detroit Tigers coverage is all going to be found at the Athletics Detroit. Um, I'm actually working on uh, releasing my top 20 prospect list, which is slated to probably go live tomorrow. So very excited about that. I think one of the most 
fascinating aspects when I was putting the list together is, oh, my goodness, the Tigers have prospects. This is not <laughs> something I'm used to. <laughs> so that side of it was really kind of an encouraging thing to look at and also opening my eyes to the fact that it's going to be very stretching for the fan base in the years to come because of the fact that a lot of these guys are still several years out. But it's really it's an encouraging aspect to look at, and so that should be going live tomorrow. Um, and then obviously my weekly farm report with some of the Australian and Dominican and also Venezuelan leagues that are currently going on and what Tigers prospects are out there with them. So a lot of stuff, a lot of irons in the fire, and we're definitely excited for the year to get going. Well, I got nothing quite as exciting as that. Um, I'm um, in the middle of writing a a, a, a story about uh, Bitcoin, um, and um, I and as soon as it's uh, it's out there, I'll let you all know when it's uh, being published, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll certainly let you know by my Twitter feed. Uh, yeah, and you can you can follow me on Twitter at Sean at page A W N underscore W underscore Smith. Uh, up here in Canada, the junior hockey trade deadline just passed, so I have a bunch of stories to write about that. And uh, anything I write, you can you can check it out on my Twitter for sure. Great stuff. You've been listening to Sean W. Smith, Marshall Auerbach, and Emily Walden here on the Jays Journal Roundtable Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.